Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Sean Walker of Simple Cove, and I'm joined today by Hui Huen, the Alabama woodworker. How you guys doing? Excellent. Got a little cold there, Hui? Yeah, I'm a little under the weather. My, I think I'm starting to lose my voice, um, but Uh-oh. I did have a cold, but I'm feeling better. It's just all the congestion, I think, is... So, yeah, I didn't take, <laughs> look- my, I didn't take my mineral oil today. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna I keep your answer short it. then <laughs> and guy dunlap of guys wood shop what's going on guy howdy duty nice this podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and to give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops we also have a patreon campaign and we'd like to thank our newest patron martin penning if you'd like to support the show we're simply asking for a small donation to cover the cost of bringing you this amazing awesome podcast Head on over to patreon.com forward slash woodshoplife if you'd like to show your support. Stay tuned to the end of the episode to hear about what we have going on in our own shops. But with that out of the way, let's get right into it. Hui, what's your first question? All right. So this question is from Julio. And again, sorry for the listeners. My voice is uh, starting to go out, but it's the way it is. Hi, longtime listener that truly appreciates all the wisdom and humor you have provided over the years in your great podcast. Thank you very much, Julio. Uh, I have a couple of design questions, and he had he had entered a question in earlier, and we answered the first one. But basically, uh, Julio is making a sofa and a pair of side tables, and it's a pretty simple design. And I think when I think of simple, I kind of think of uh, shaker design. So it, it, from what he explains, it seems like a shaker design. And uh, he's using basic mortise and tenon joinery uh, for the apron and legs. And he asks here, I want to try my hand at piston fit drawers instead of using drawer slides. How would you attach the inner structure that supports the drawer underneath and on the sides inside the table? I don't have a domino or biscuit joiner. I have never had good results with pieces attached with pocket holes staying in place during installation, and I'm afraid the slight movement will ruin the piston fit. Well, with piston fit drawers, you're really fitting the drawer to the opening and not so much fitting the opening to the drawer, if that makes sense. So even if you were using pocket holes and there was a slight movement, which you wouldn't want that to happen, but in this case, uh, Julio, wouldn't really matter so much because you're fitting the drawer to that opening anyway. But that being said, um, I would recommend looking at maybe some of the furniture that Christian Bexford has done. He does a lot of shaker style furniture, and he uses a lot of very traditional joinery, mortise and tenons, a lot of sliding dovetails. And so what I would suggest for you is to use some stub tenons. They're fairly easy to make, and that you could use those stub tenons to attach the uh, inside structure uh, to uh, uh, for that would support the drawer itself. Maybe even a sliding dovetail for that uh, for that front rail that will support uh, the, the the bottom front of the uh, of, of the support for the drawer, um, and maybe even uh, a couple of dados or something for the uh, side structure, the web frame or dividers, whatever it is that you want to call them, along the sides uh, of your structure of, of of your carcass there. So that would be my suggestion is look at maybe uh, some of Christian Bexford's work. He, he's done a, he's, he has a couple of plans that you can 
look at um, both on for free online, but then also that you can purchase and purchasing those plans are relatively cheap. But I always like going to uh, to look at work from other people that that have done very similar work to what I'm trying to do. And I think that'll give you a really good understanding or at least a good foundation as to what you could do for joinery for those uh, dividers and supports. Uh, Guy, how about you? I know you've done some federal style furniture that has used uh, some pretty basic, well, I shouldn't say basic, but traditional uh, joinery uh, for drawers. Uh, what would you suggest? Well, the, the, I'm getting the gist of the question as to the actual drawer slides slash supports, not the drawer. So mm-hmm. <clears throat> traditionally, what you would find is a the front blade, which is the the front piece, the horizontal piece that's you know either dovetailed or dadoed or whatever into the the, the front part of the, the the piece. Yeah, and then on the sides you have the the rails going to the back that mm-hmm. support the drawer. Mm-hmm. You can attach those to the front blade and they can be housed in uh, dados on the side or sliding dovetails, but they have to be able to move a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Cause what you're trying to do is that if the front, what if, and when the front blade moves, it's going to take those side pieces and push it towards the back. You yep. want to keep the front, of it locked into the front. So it's always even in the front. So it's going to push it to the back. And on the back, um, traditionally what you'll find is like a mortise and tenon where you have a, the, the back blade for, I don't know exactly what it's called, but the back blade. And then the side pieces actually go into that and like a mortise and tenon almost. Mm -hmm. And they, and they're loose. Right. Right. And there's room for, yeah, there's room for it to expand back into mm-hmm. the into the piece if that makes sense mm-hmm. or you can just make some loose fitting semi loose fitting um dados in it and put the side pieces in and the whole thing just slides back and forth but it's not really like really like it slides and it's loose mm-hmm. um it's you a, might like add a dab of glue in the front or something like that yeah well, that's what I just said before. It's it's gonna oh, be sorry. locked into it's gonna be locked into the front, but it's gonna mm-hmm. push towards the back. Yeah. So <clears throat> the, those rails on the sides have to be able to follow the front piece because that's the way the grain is going. Right. Yep. 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 So as the front piece expands, the blade expands. It's pushing those other pieces back along with it. And again, it doesn't. It's not like it, when I say loose where I'm talking about where it's just like this sloppy, loose fitting, it can be actually fairly tight because the wood movement will push it back. Mm -hmm. So you can actually just put it in the back and, and have the back cross piece fit in there and the whole thing just move back. You just don't want You want to make sure that there's room for it to move and and, and it's not um, butted up to the back of the case. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wow. That's, that's really hard to describe, I guess. It is. And that's why I kind of told him that you, you, you kind of have to see it explained in a book sometimes, yeah. you know, uh, 
video and and words sometimes don't really help in an explanation as like a picture in a book yeah. sometimes helps a lot you know how about so, you sean uh what what would you suggest so on this i'm just making sure that i'm on the same page here when we're looking at the front of the of a shaker style end table you've got the you've got the little miniature piece above the drawer front and a miniature piece below the drawer front they look like little baby aprons as we'll call them sure. those are those are typically on the on the top i i typically dovetail that in on the one below the drawer i'll use a mortise and tenon now the pieces on the inside that the drawer will slide on on the bottom and the top i typically and this again you know do as as i'm sure that someone else says not as sean does i typically leave a little slight gap in other words, they don't butt all the way up against that little apron piece that's below and above the drawer front. And then mm-hmm. I edge glue those to the side apron so and orient the grain so that if it expands, it's going to expand left to right underneath the drawer, not up and down. Mm-hmm. And, and they, the drawer basically, I have one on the bottom, one on the top of the drawer, and it pretty much you know holds the drawer in place so it can't teeter up and down. And I've also got another little piece in there so the drawer can't rack left to right. And I... I just use, have used glue on that and no hardware or no like mortise or tenon or dado or anything like that. I just oriented the grain so that when it does expand, those little pieces, they expand in a way that's not going to interact with anything to cause it to rack or be tight. Uh, I see. Yeah. But that again, that's, that's just, that's my method. Yeah. There's that's a lot good. of different ways. Yeah. That, that is good. That is good. It's a little simpler. Whew. That's good. Not bad. Didn't give bad advice. All right. I'm no. on a roll. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a that's one of those things. There's ten different ways to do it, and they're all correct. Yep. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Yep. Absolutely. Cool. Or you can well, make the entire case out of veneered plywood, and then you don't have to worry. That's <laughs> Just right. Just use screws. Yeah. That's right. Here you go. All righty. Well, guy, what do you got for us? So this question is from Tom, and Tom says. First, I want to say fantastic podcast, guys. By far the best woodworking podcast out there. Well, wow. thank you. And I, I agree with you, Tom. <laughs> I recently discovered the podcast and have binge listened to old past episodes while building the cabinets for our new home. We are mm. building a new home with the shop garage combo. And I finally had the space to buy the tools that I have never had the space to own before. Next up on my list is a drill press and trying to decide what size to get. Bench top model versus floor model, size motor, features to look for, etc. I build furniture and cabinets mostly, but I like pushing my creative side and making other odd things as well. I want the best bang for the money, but I don't mind spending a little extra to get what will be my lifetime drill press. Thanks for your help. Keep up the good work and plan to be a longtime listener, but I didn't buy a saw stop, so I might die soon. Oh, Tom. No. <laughs> I get it. Uh, I have a drill press. I think we all have drill presses. Um, yeah. I had a floor standing 15-inch Craftsman for a number of years, and it was it was all right. Um I went to a drill press that's not our manufacturing anymore, Steel City. And the reason I went to it, it mainly had to do 
with the variable speed motor. It has like a a Reeves drive that you'll find on a lathe where it's got a little lever and you push it back and forth and it actually changes the speed of the drill press. Mm -hmm. And it has a one horsepower motor on it, which is really beasty. And it was cheap. It was like 300 bucks and it's really good. Um, Yeah. Well, steel city's out of business now. Yeah. But it it was, it's good. It's a good, it's a good drill press. The thing that you lose when you go to a drill press, like a benchtop drill press, Tom, is the distance between the uh, post in the back and where the where the bit actually is. Think bandsaw. So when they say like 17-inch drill press, that's the distance from the center of the drill bit to the post. You know, like mine is a 13-inch. There's not much room there. So if you have something that you need to get into the middle of, you can't do it because it only goes 13 inches. And you get further back, obviously, with the, the, the larger band or larger band saws, the larger drill presses. The other thing, too, is the amount of travel on the quill. So when you know when you spin the, the those knobs and you spin it around, mine only travels like two inches. So mm, it's not yeah. like I can bore really deep holes with it. Let's say yeah. For example, I'm 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 doing a uh, a shelf that I wanted to do uh, like the floating shelf where you don't see the hardware. Well, all that hardware requires you to drill like four to six inch holes into the back of the shelf where these pins stick in it. Mine won't be able to do that. You look at something like a Powermatic. That thing has a six inch travel. So those are all things to consider. Uh, the reason I like the idea of the Reeves drive is because I'm a big believer in changing the speed of my drill bits. You know, yep. the, the, the smaller the drill bit, the faster you want it to go. But I use a lot of Forstner bits and things like that on my drill press. So I've got like three quarter, one inch, inch and a half, two inch sometimes. I want to slow that thing down because the rim speed is fast. So I don't want to burn up the, the, the bits I have. So that's why I change my speeds a lot. And if you don't have that type of drill press where you can change the speed easily, you have to, you know, you have to open it up. You have to loosen the motor. You have to change the belts on it. It's kind of a pain in the butt, but anyway, so I don't know. What, what do you think about this, Sean? Uh, I agree with you 100%. Now, the way that I thought about it when I was looking for a drill press is, you know, the first thing is, do I want a floor standing or a bench top? And you nailed it with that on the, the downsides of going with a bench top drill press. Um, so I went with the floor standing because of all those things. And plus, it it's just a bigger a, a bigger machine. Gave me more, at least the one that I got. It's not necessarily true on all of them, but the one that I got that was floor standing Gave me a one and three quarter horse motor. So they gave me more power, bigger table so that I could, you know, hold stuff on there. Like if I was doing a cabinet door or something like that, it just gives you more room. Um, and then when it came time to, okay, I know what type I want to get. Now, how crazy do I want to get when I'm spending money? And mm-hmm. that's kind of where I, I'm, you know, I'm the of the opinion, and it's just for me, does it have the power? Does it drill straight? 
yes, that's kind of where I stopped. Now, mine has the same type of mechanism that Guy explained on how to change and slow it down, turn it off, lift the top, loosen the motor, pull it in, change the belts, tighten the motor, and all that stuff, which takes time. So the more money you spend, you know, the the, the nicer little options you're going to get uh, than what you get when you save the money and get I just the only thing I cared about is that did it drill straight? Did it have the power? Cool. What, what do you what have? I, I have a Porter cable floor standing from yeah. the the home center. Yeah, from Lowe's. Okay. Yeah, it's. I mean, I'm able to chuck anything I want in there. It's plenty powerful, but the only thing it doesn't have is the adjustability of it has it, but it's just turn it off, loosen the motor, and all that stuff. Mm. You know, I, at the time, now the prices have changed. I spent three ninety nine for it. And being able to get, you know, something, you mm. can spend twelve, fifteen, eighteen hundred dollars on a drill press. I just didn't see the need to spend that money on that. You know, maybe if I was upgrading my shop later on in life, and I was like, it'd be nice to have a, a really nice Powermatic drill press, and I had mm. the money and all that, it'd be dope. But just starting out, I just wanted something that worked and had power and was drilled straight, and I could move on. Yeah. We. So yeah, you have so- a grizzly, right? No, no. No, um, I used to have a Harbor Freight Central machinery. Central machinery. Yeah, Central Machinery. And it was a benchtop model, and I think it was a 13 inch. And uh, it's one of those things, just like yours, uh, Sean, where you have to, you know, change the belt and whatnot. And there isn't a lot of variability. I think there's like 500 RPM increments or something like that. I can't remember. Um, and, and honestly, I would have changed it, the, the belt speed a lot more often, but it was such a pain. Um, and, and yeah, you're right, guy, you definitely do want to change your speed because you will burn up bits. Yeah. Don't ask me how I know that. And you don't, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But people don't change the speed because it's not a huge pain in the ass, but it's just another thing you have to do. It's just like I just have one cut. Yeah. So I'm not going to turn on a dust collector. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I just, let me chuck up this one inch bit. I only got to do it once. It's no big deal. Yeah. And then you burn up the bit. You know, it's all blued and everything. Well, what do you Um, have? So (laughs) about six months ago when I was moving into my house, have you ever heard of Nova tools? Uh They make the drill, uh, the uh, lades and whatnot. Yeah, they and have so they one have of those a, things with that super fancy automatic yes, crap. But I got on the list uh, for when they had their refurbished models available, mm-hmm. um, and they emailed me that a refurbished model was available, and so I got it for not eight ninety nine. It's an expensive drill press. Yeah, uh, it's a floor standing. It's an eighteen inch, but it has a DVR on it. And that's what I cared about more was the DVR. I mean, and yeah, I know the whole like fancy when it hits the depth and it stops and all that stuff. And yeah, and I, you tell it what you're drilling and yes, yes. And it's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> well, I got one. It, it is very easy to adjust the speed on that thing uh, because it's a DVR. It's a digital variable reluctance motor. And uh, yeah, it's a great drill press, but I don't think you need to spend that much money on a drill press to get a really good drill press. Um, it just so happens that that came available mm-hmm. and and I sold my old one and, and got this one. So that's what I have now. 
I'm trying to think, you know, the Porter cable, I saw that one when I was looking for drill press back then, but I was trying to think that I was also looking at a Grizzly that was very similar to that. And I ended up not getting the Grizzly because the central machinery benchtop model came available on Craigslist for like 50 bucks or 75 bucks or something like that. And I just bought it just to have something. And I didn't want to spend a lot of money at the time because I didn't have a lot of money at the time. And it worked fine for me for a really, really long time. Other than the fact that like, it's just that one extra step to have to state change the Mm -hmm. speed. And you definitely do want to change the speed when you're using bigger drill bits. Absolutely. The thing is with most drill presses, that includes the Nova that you have, and especially Sean with the Porter cable you have. uh, Most drill presses Mm -hmm. are designed for metalworking. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Not woodworking. So the, the, the tables are very small. They often yeah. don't take real small bits like the, the Porter cable. We had two of those at work and you couldn't put a 16th inch drill bit in them. Huh. They would, the, the chuck wouldn't close on them. Huh. I don't think so, I've ever tried that before. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the chuck won't do it. So, um, yeah, we still have those. We just recently got a Powermatic and that is made for woodworking. It's got a really large table. It has a fence with stops. And I did a lot of that same thing. And that's the other thing, Tom. You know, I I did a lot of that stuff to my own drill press at home. I've got the the woodpecker table on it. I've had a laser for a long time, and it's actually dialed in really well. And it it works for me. And it was cheap, Yeah, to be honest with you. It was inexpensive. So. And it does everything I need it to do. I don't need to do a lot. I just want to drill. There's sometimes I want to drill straight holes. Other times I just need to drill holes and I just do it by hand. Yeah. 99% of the time I'm doing it by hand. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, how much do you guys use your drill press? Rarely. Rarely. Yeah. Yeah. If you're making furniture, it's... I wouldn't rarely. say rarely, but it's not as much as, let's say, a bandsaw or a table saw goes. Oh, Lord. Correct. No. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. to me, the the good thing is, though, even if you get a really super expensive one, it takes up a very small footprint. Right. Yeah. If nothing you can stick else, them anywhere. It doesn't take up a lot of, takes up mm-hmm. a lot of room. So, But that, I, that Powermatic is a big drill press, isn't it? It's, no, it I, takes the same footprint as any other drill press. Okay. Okay. I mean, it's a drill. It just looks gigantic, that huge head. It isn't. Okay. So. um, Yeah, I have a a drill press table as well, the wooden one that I built. Sean, do you have one in the fence? Yeah, I built one. Yeah. They're really handy to have because it increases your footprint. The table top footprint helps a lot. All right. Cool. Who's got the next question? I believe I do. So. Shamelessly, I took this one because I have an answer, but I also wanted to use this as a learning opportunity for myself with the other two guys on the podcast being you two. So just to preface this with by saying that this is from Craig gents found your show midway through a 22 hour drive into Mexico, listening to you, particularly guy reminds me of the people in the shops I visited while a board member of the San, I'm sorry, I can't Joaquin. say that one. 
Yeah, Joaquin, fine woodworking club in California. Simple, mm-hmm. not too fussy advice that is useful for those picking up the woodworking hobby or far into the deep end of this avocation. Keep up the good work. You've spent a fair amount of time discussing the likes and dislikes of water locks. Recent project was 42 by 78 patio table with four quarter and eight quarter sapili. That's wow, patio table made out of sapili. That's going to be nice. Yeah. Uh-huh. Legs are five inch squared, two tapered and coped with a Macintosh style. As it would live outdoors, I opted to finish with water locks, marine finish, and gloss. Uh, uh, prep, sand to 220 grit, vacuum and compressed air, wipe down mineral spirits, apply water locks with a gen foam brush. The first coat was a disaster with a dime sized voids in the finish. Ooh. As if the surface was waxed before the water locks went down. I believe the cause was the mineral spirits. I applied the finish about a half hour after the wipe down. Something I often do without issue with spar urethane. Subsequent coats went down fine after letting the piece off gas for four days. My thinking was the tongue oil interacted with the residual solvent. Thoughts? Thanks, Craig. P.S. I mentioned the foam brush brand because I found it to be the only one that rivals high quality bristle brushes for a brush application. And I I didn't know what gen uh, foam brushes are, but apparently that's a manufacturer that sells, I guess, high end foam brushes. Um, They're available on Amazon. So I've never used them, but, um, so I took this because, you know, I'm obviously curious about it, but if I I were, if I were to guess, I would agree with Craig. Um, I'm not, I've not known Sapele to be a waxy type, uh, oily, not waxy, but an oily type lumber that I'm aware of. Um, so I'm guessing that when Craig applied the mineral spirits, uh, he probably, you know, it absorbed in some areas, dry, flashed off rather in some areas yeah. and was still wet in other areas. And they basically mm-hmm. applied the uh, water locks and it essentially absorbed more or less in other areas uh, that was still wet. And it perhaps uh, flashed off or thin, quote unquote, thinned the finish in that area. Um, and which makes sense with, you know, Craig applying the second coat and it and it fixed the issue. So I'm guessing that, um, that, that was the, the issue there. And I'm curious about it being uh, dime size voids instead of patches or blotches or like sections. And the dime size voids is the part that was confusing to me mm-hmm. uh, as to why they would be that shape um, it, when you're applying the mineral spirits to clean off the surface. Um, so that's kind of what I wanted to, to bounce around with you all's knowledge on this and see if obviously the, the most obvious thing to me was the mineral spirits, but why dime size voids? And I, unfortunately I don't have an answer for why that would be the issue with this spar urethane. What are you all thoughts on that? I think that it might've absorbed into certain areas as opposed to other areas based on possibly on how he sanded. I don't know, but I, that's all I could imagine is that certain areas of certain pores of the, it got absorbed into certain pores of the wood where, you know, maybe the wood was more dense than in other areas. I don't know. I can't, I can't think of why. Oh, yeah. I think he answered his own question, which is the, the, the mineral spirits he, he applied and it, it, had, it had not flashed off properly. Completely. Yeah. Yeah. So. But why dime size? Yeah. That's the thing. I, I don't know. Me. I don't know. I, 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 Myself, I'm not a big fan of the look of Sapili, so I've never used it. Wow. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I don't like it. Um, but that's just me. Yeah. It's a type of mahogany, and I have used mahogany before. And I've used water locks on mahogany before and didn't have any issues. But I don't use mineral spirits to wipe anything down with. I don't use mineral spirits basically at all. I typically use denatured alcohol Mm. because it flashes off really fast. And I know if I wipe something down with DNA, the alcohol is going to flash off. If I give it an hour, it's flashed off more than enough. Mineral spirits, I'm not 100% sure, I guess. Um, Yeah, I, I used to use mineral spirits. And then after our discussion about like, the fact that it doesn't flash off, you know, you mentioned denature alcohol. I don't know how many episodes ago, but I stopped using it for that reason and started using denatured alcohol. And I feel like it, yeah, it definitely flashes off a lot faster. Yeah. But like I said, as far as the, the shape and the size of the, the voids he's experiencing, I, I don't know. I think it's just one of those things. It's a weird thing. And I don't, I don't have an answer. I'm just not going to pull something out of my, my butt. Yeah, there's there's no way that we could guess what it is yeah. and be right without knowing. But man, that is so odd. Yeah, it they're, is. They're little it crop little circles. Strange. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's strange. But like I said, I don't, I don't know enough of the specifics. Even though he's been very specific, there's still a couple <laughs> questions I have. You know, like you said about the sanding and things like that. That's the only other thing I can think of. But like I said, he answered his own question. Yeah, uh, it's definitely an absorption type thing, yeah. I would think, because the second coat yeah. fixed it. So yeah. that second first coats are always, anyways, a little blotchiness because they're you know absorbs more than others. It's a little hanky. Yeah, so I'm wondering if perhaps uh, Craig, no offense, I don't know if he's used the paleo before, or maybe he applied it thinly on you know thin on the first coat and and it just didn't you know didn't cover it well enough with the first coat. With it's hard to tell, but yeah it definitely fixed it on the second coat. So something to do with the, how much it absorbed of the water locks, but I'm going to have to try those gen foam brushes. So thanks for the tip on that, Craig. Yeah. And with that, hopefully we helped Craig apologize. If we didn't uh, let us know if you figure it out <laughs> and then we will retain that knowledge. So Hui, what do you got for us for your second question? All right. So this is from our good friend, Tom, who, has all that air-dried black locust. Congratulations as you near your 100th episode. Well, thank you, Tom. And well-deserved syndication riches. We hadn't (laughs) quite got there yet. (laughs) I'm about to complete my workbench of air-dried black locust top. Crazy that you did that. That's so much black locust. And white oak, the base. I'm installing a leg and twin screw tail vices I will need to procure additional lumber for the thick components of both. I thought it might look nice to use some walnut. Yeah, I think that would look really nice, but I can only get 12 quarter kiln dry. I don't see a problem with the leg chop. It's attached with the vice hardware, but would dovetailing a kiln dried tail skirt onto an air dried laminated top, would that be asking for problems? Thank you for any advice or relevant anecdotes you may have well i i don't see if it's if it's dried to 
about the same or similar or close to the same moisture content, I don't see why that's going to be a problem. So I, I would say, you know, get a cheapo moisture meter, see what your top is, see what that kiln dried wood is. If it's a close or relatively close, I, I don't see that as being a problem. I, I think the only difference in air dried versus kiln dried is the speed at which it dried and the process by which uh, was used to to dry the wood in the first place. I, I, I can't see an issue with that. But I've actually, to be honest, never mixed kiln dried and air dried material because most of the material I get is kiln dried. Sean, have you encountered any issues with integrating air dried and kiln dried wood? Um, I've never mixed the two. If it were me, I would make sure that the they're both acclimated to your shop. Typically, when you have when you have things like air dried or kiln dry that or kiln dry that's too kiln dry too fast, you're going to have stresses in the wood that will come out when you work them. Um, but if they're both acclimated, dried to your shop, been sitting there long enough, I wouldn't see an issue with it. I yeah. do have a very, very dumb question for both of you. This is probably dumb. So in looking at this, obviously he is turning the the boards for the top sideways. So they grow when they grow, that'd be the top will be thicker or thinner that way. Right. Mm-hmm. So when you are dovetailing the ends into the walnut, the only thing that's going to remain inside of the walnut are going to be the dovetails. Correct. Correct. Okay. So is that going to move those dovetails going to move enough to cause that walnut to not be stable if they no. are acclimated? No. I don't okay. think so. Okay. I didn't think so either, but I just wanted We're to talking, yeah, draw that four out. Four inches. Oh, well, I think his I think his top is four inches thick. Four yeah. inches? I I don't think so. Nah. I mean if they're acclimated, I wouldn't be concerned. Yeah. yeah. I've 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 mixed uh, kiln dried and air dried wood and, and Sean hit it right on the head before where that's twice tonight. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's <laughs> tremendous. I've, 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 I'm just like in awe of your awesomeness. So <laughs> if it's been dried to a certain, you know, uh, percentage of moisture, it's that percentage. It doesn't matter if it's through a kiln or through the air. Right. So the way I always approach things is not whether it's kiln dried or air dried, but just basically the species of the wood. And, you know, I, I, I respect wood movement, especially when I'm doing stuff cross grain. Yeah. So, I mean, you just have to prepare for it. And uh, I always try to, I always know that in most cases, wood is going to move. It's always going to move. So prepare for it. And we've talked about this before on the drawer where we're locking in the front and pushing the expansion towards the back. Mm -hmm. Just look at the wood and say, okay, I'm going to do this, this, and this. Which way, wood always expands uh, across the grain, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Not with the grain. Right. So you're doing this, you're, whatever the situation is, you're doing this, you're doing this, you're putting this together with this piece. 
just look at the grain and see which way the grain is going. Okay, now I know that this area right here is going to be a problem. Mm -hmm. How can I mitigate some of the, the problems with the expansion and contraction? Well, I'm only going to see this part of it. Okay, good. I'm going to lock that in and I'm going to push the other stuff towards the back or I'm going to push it towards the front or to the side or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. You just have to look at it logically, I guess is what I'm saying. And in this case, since he's turning the boards on their side and laminating them, mm -hmm. and then you're taking that end cap, if you orient the direction in the same direction as to the way that Expansion. wood is going to move in thickness, then it, it should move relative to that laminated top. It shouldn't be a problem. I can't see it being a Yeah, problem. they're both going to be moving in the same direction, so. Mm -hmm. Correct, correct. Cool. Well, hope that helps, Tom. Guy, what do you got? Oh, back to me. I think so. This Already? question is from Mike. And Mike says, hello all. Thank you for continuing to deliver an informative and fun podcast week after week. I'm glad I found <laughs> the show. Well, I'm glad you listened to the show, Mike. My question is regarding learning more about design for my projects. Up to now, most of my projects have been based on existing design or product. I scroll Instagram, Pinterest, furniture store sites and find pieces similar to what I want and duplicate them, duplicate them, duplicate them or, or smash a few together to make my own. I'd like to start developing a design style of my own or Pick a lane of design, such as uh, mission or green and green, and focus a little more on that. Can you recommend any books or authors to give me a better understanding of the popular design periods that speak to the elements, features, woods used, and so on for the various periods of design to help? To help pick one, I should say. I'd be interested in any books that teach elements of a good design like proper proportions and similar for furniture building so I can design and build a well-balanced piece. There's so much, it, there is so much, it might be impossible to put that all in a book, but you all offer good insight to us listeners, so I'd welcome whatever you have to offer any recommendations you might have. Thanks all, Mike. Wow, that was a, I need a drink after talking so much there. Coffee is good. So to his question, um, I agree with you, Mike, that design is where it's at. I mean, I think I've talked about this before where, you know, after a certain point in time, you can, anybody can do mortise and tenons and dovetails and all that. It really comes, becomes a matter of designing your own stuff and figuring out the proportions, dimensions, styles, things like that. Um, I think the way I'd like to handle this is let's kind of do what we did before once where, you know, I'm going to say a book and then it can go to Sean. And well, I got Sean bad news for you on that. I'm not going to be able to remember any of the books. <laughs> well, I'd have to prep just, for this question. Well, I'm sure you can suggest something for him to read. Maybe think about it. We'll go to you last. Okay. Um, 
Anyways, he mentioned green and green furniture. There's a there's a gentleman named Daryl Peart, who's from the the West Coast. I think he's in Portland or Seattle, one of the two. But he's written several books on green and green furniture, the history of, and also how to make the stuff. He's got some YouTube videos out there also, and he's really good at green and green style furniture. And I think he's got another, he's just, he just announced he's got another book coming out and you can pre, I know it sounds like I'm a, an advertisement for him. I think you can pre-order pre on Amazon, but um, he's got a lot of very good ideas and interpretations of the green and green style that might help you. Hui, do you have any recommendations for Mike? Yeah, there are a couple so if you're looking for inspiration that's outside the lane of woodworking, but just, you know, something interesting to look at, um, something that was recommended to me, and, and I'll, I'll be honest, none of the styles or things that are that I see from Bauhaus, Bauhaus is a design institute out, I think it's in Germany, and, and they're, it's very well known. You can see a lot of the designs just on the internet. And if you just search Bauhaus, again, probably not your design, but but it's intriguing. You know, it kind of gets those uh, creative juices flowing. But then two books that I know of are The Furniture Bible. And um, it, it's really a book to give you the ability to identify specific periods and how to care for furniture, how to restore furniture. But again, I think it's good to look at some of that and read about the history as to how mission furniture came into existence, how federal furniture came to existence, colonial furniture came to existence, and when those time periods were. And uh, the third book, well, I'll leave the third book off. We'll, we'll talk about that. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll do another round robin again. So, so Sean? I'm going to recommend a, a couple of books just from the same author um, that I haven't really had a lot of time to look into that I own and read. Um, and that's from James Krenov, like a cabinet maker's mm, notebook. Yeah. It's not in the fine art of cabinet making. They're not necessarily how to's, but it's more of like the, the thought process behind the designs, the trees, the materials, the whys and, um, and, and his thought process that goes into designing his pieces. There's some, there's some stuff on there about the, you know, the actual about making these cabinets and whatnot, but the, there's more to it than just draw it, build it. There's more to like the theory behind it, the, the love for the material and for the art of woodworking. And that's uh, James Krenov. Uh, there's a couple of book, a cabinet makers notebook and the fine art of cabinet making. Yeah, I actually have a copy of Cabinet Maker's Notebook that's signed by Krenov. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Wow. A, a, a woodworking friend of mine, Brian, sent it to me. It was that's very, awesome. Just out of the blue, it just showed up at my house one day. Very nice. That's amazing. Another gentleman that's really good at design is his name is Jeff Miller, and he's out of Chicagoland area. Mm, yeah. And he's got a couple books, but one of them is called Chair Making and Design. Mm -hmm. And he does talk a lot about chair making, but he also talks a lot about designing the chairs yeah. themselves. Uh, if you ever go into that lane, you know, if you're talking about finding a lane of, of design. Jeff 
is very good at designing things, not just chairs, but also furniture itself. He's wrote, written another book. I can't remember the name of it. The Foundations of Better Woodworking. Mm. And it's more woodworking, but he does touch on design on some of that stuff. But he's really good at at designing stuff. With a, He's got kind of a modern flair to what yeah. he does. So that's that's another person I'd recommend looking up some of his written work. Yeah. We you got anybody else? Yeah. Anything so else highbrow that nobody's heard of? Highbrow. There's a book called <laughs> The Woodworker's Guide to Furniture Design. And mm. it's written by uh, a gentleman by the name of Garth Graves, who is a woodworker. Mm. And one of the things that he actually touches on is how to go from an idea within either your head or within a client's head and actually working that through into like a working drawing. So if you're actually thinking about doing like some client work or maybe, you know, your wife could be a client too, right? Or, uh, or just trying to flush out those ideas from, from somebody else into a working design. Um, I, I would recommend looking at this book and seeing how he goes about uh, taking those ideas from, from folks and creating a working drawing that you can work off of. Outside of that, he talks very much about proportionality. Proportionality is very important. Um, why you would choose certain thickness for things, why you would cer choose certain angles, setback angles, things like that, which also Jeff Miller talks about in his book. And I have that book, by the way, and it's a very good book. So if you're thinking the about- The chair-making one or the- Yes, if you're thinking one. about- yeah. Yeah, uh, Chair-making one. Yeah. Chair-making one. Yeah, if you're thinking about doing chairs- Get that book. It's a really good book because it's very much focused on 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 uh, chair angles, compound angles, things like that. It's very important. Yeah. Um, Sean? All right. The last one that I have, and this is probably the, the book that I use the most and I completely forgot about it. Um, it shows you how much I use it. But no, it's, it's the best woodworking book that I probably own when it comes to the construction methods. Now, coming up with your own design is is awesome, but when you draw something versus, you know, building it, you, you need to know the finer details of like the construction pieces that uh, sections that you can't, can't figure out like web framing on the inside of, of a, um, of a night of a nightstand or something like that. The, the smaller details for building these pieces. And that's called, uh, and this book just completely covers everything. And it's called illustrated cabinet making. They have the book I had was released in 1999 by Bill Hilton there's an updated version that was released in 2015 by Bill. Highly, highly, highly recommend picking that up because they cover all of the periods the and examples of the periods, construction methods, um, the different types of molding shapes. And like when you're building a dining room table, it talks about the elbow room, the chair room, the table height, the leg room, the knee room. I mean, it is an amazing book. And, uh, and it also gives you diagrams with the names of things like on a tilt top table, you know, it's got the battens, the bird cage, the pedestal, the tripod base, a slipper foot. I mean, it gives you the proper names for these items, how to construct them, the dimensions of, uh, of this. And it's probably again, the best book that I've purchased when it comes to designing my own furniture on how to like, how can I, how can I construct this? Well, let me look at the examples and kind of fit something into my design, but that's illustrated cabinet making. Uh, it's a it's a must purchase. Yeah, that's those are all really good points, Sean. I mean, it's great to, you know design your own furniture and all that, but if it 
doesn't work to, I don't want to say normal everyday life and use uh, ex- or, or, or usage, it's worthless. Yeah. Furniture is designed to be used, not just looked at, in my opinion. Absolutely. Um, so it's great to have this chair that's got this fancy design, but if it's not comfortable, yeah, there's what's just the point? Yeah. And that's, so, that's one so of the books, things. Books like you were talking about, Sean, hit all those points. You know, a good example is the tables. How much mm-hmm. room to keep, you know, how high do they, how high should it be? How much mm-hmm. room per person? Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. Things like that. That, that. All that stuff is really important to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. So. Cool. All right. And three for three today. Woo. <laughs> yeah, you're rocking. I tell you what, I'm going to get the gold star on just like you, I want to be just like you when I grow up. Well, keep at it. You will. <laughs> that being said, Sean, you got the last question. Oh, I do. All right. Look at that segue. I know. I like that. Keeping me on my toes. Uh, this is from Chris. Hi, guys. Thanks for the podcast. Really helpful info. Keep hearing your requests for more questions. So here are a few. We'd already answered a couple. So here's the last one remaining for Chris. You talked a lot about dust extraction recently. I've seen people claiming that by replacing the filter bag with a fine cartridge filter, people have seen major improvements in the performance of their extractor units. Do you have any experience with these? Thanks for all the time you put in. Love listening. Best wishes. Chris, UK-based enthusiastic amateur. I had a the Harbor Freight unit that came with the bag on top and um, and the plastic bag on the bottoms at least. So I replaced that with the Win. I think it's a, is it Win? Yeah, the Win yeah. cartridge. I purchased that. So I do have some experience on this. I didn't do any scientific, you know, studies or anything, but I could tell the the cartridge filters, they offered, you know, better filtration, better airflow, and way easier cleaning than the bag filters. You know, the cartridge cartridge filters are often they're also smaller than the 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 big bag units, especially when you turn them on and those things ex, you know blow up to look like a one of those little um things that like a used car lot. But they also bring with them more filter area by like a factor of three or even more. So you got smaller footprint and more filter area by three or four or even more uh, than the bags. Now, since to the performance thing, I have read that, you know, I did look into this a little bit that since there's an increase in the filter area, it makes it easier for the air to flow through the filter. So you do gain a boost in performance. And the study that I saw, well, not a study, an example from a reputable blog is a one and a half horsepower dust collector that gained 15 to 20% performance increase from switching due to the increased uh, filter, making it easier for the air to flow through. And, um, and I don't, I've already mentioned it once, but cleaning it is a heck of a lot easier. I know the performance increase is awesome, but cleaning it, uh, better filtration and all that stuff is just as important, in my opinion, that of the performance increase uh, when I switched from the bag to the filter. And if you, you know, if you're if you have the money to swing it, I highly recommend switching and getting off of the bags and going with the cartridge filters uh, for all of those things that I mentioned uh, in in this uh, in this response. It it's just a whole lot better uh, cleaning alone and, and the performance. And there's not too many, too many more things I can mention about it. Um, but highly recommend switching it out. Have either of you had a bag and switched to a cartridge filter guy? Maybe I think you may have. Yes. Yeah. I actually did a series of two videos on it. 
that's probably about seven or eight years old now, maybe older than that, I don't know, that are on YouTube where I took my old Powermatic single stage dust collector and first I put a, a win, first I tested it thoroughly, you know, got CFM measurements and all that. Then I put the wind filter on it and tested that. And then I put a dust deputy on it and then tested that. Oh. And all the numbers are in those those videos. So I don't, unfortunately, I don't remember what the hell they were. Um, but again, Sean, now you're four for four. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to go ahead and call it quits. Yeah, yeah. So... <laughs> You do get more square footage of filter area. Plus, they're typically HEPA filters, uh, which means they filter out looks like a MERV 1 rating or move MERV 10 or MERV 80,000. I can't remember the number. I think it's like MERV 10 or something. And that means they, they filter out 99.7% of dust particles. So... And that's at, that's at one micron, a micron being one millionth of a meter. Very, very small. So it does a very good job, but they do clog up quicker. The thing is, though, the, this is weird. The dirtier it is, the better it cleans. But you do lose CFM. Right. Because there's, not, there's, there's adding back pressure to it. And mm -hmm. the air isn't flowing high enough. So most of those cartridge filters, I definitely recommend going with a two-stage system, which is a cyclone, like a dust deputy or whatever it is, whatever you decide to do, to filter out the, the, the big, bigger chunks before it gets to the actual cartridge itself. That's the best piece of advice I can give you on that. We, what do you? You've got a. Uh, I got a cyclone. Yeah. Yeah, but you have the the clear view. I do. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Ooh, you've yep. got you've got all the big expensive stuff. Must be nice to have all that engineer money, all that <laughs> rocket science money, <laughs> all the rocket science money. Yeah. yeah so so I, I I think the more important thing is the fact that you're filtering the air. Yeah, you're going to lose a little bit of suction because you've got that back pressure on there. But what you gain in the ability to filter out that fine dust, which will hurt your lungs over time if you keep breathing it in, is, is much better there than you know the little bit of suction that you lose. The more important thing is the airflow. And so long as you've got good airflow at your tools, you're gonna you're gonna be moving those particles in and actually collecting them. So I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry so much about the amount of uh, suction that you're losing because you're adding some back pressure. As you said, guy, I, I care more about actually collecting the yeah, dust. I agree. I think that's I the agree. more important thing. It really is. Yeah, I agree with that. So cool. Chris, hope that helps. As we always say, and I think that's our last question. I think we're going to talk about what we have going on in our shops. And I'm going to start with Hui. What do you got going on in your shop? All right. So I just put together a whole bunch of drawers. Unfortunately, when I bought the maple to make the drawers, the uh, supplier that I went to had no 
material that was eight inches wide. And I had to make drawers that was that were seven and a half inches deep or tall. They're, they're pretty deep drawers. And uh, so I had to mill up a whole bunch of material and edge, edge glue them together to make uh, the thickness and then mill them back down to make sure that, you know, I didn't have any ridges or anything. But I finally got all those together and um, I got the uh, runners. I, I don't know if you'd call them runners. Anyway, they're, they're, they're what the drawer slides, uh, the undermount drawer slides attached to on the side of the carcass. I guess you would call them runners, but technically the drawer is not running on them. Uh, the drawer slides are just attached to them. So th- those are in there um, pretty close to getting all this done. Uh, next thing I've got to do is uh, put the drawer fronts together, uh, m- machine those up and, and put them together. And then I'll be ready for paint on this dresser and it'll be hopefully out of my shop soon. So paint? guy, what do you got going on, man? What do I have going on in my shop? Nothing. Nada. <laughs> you so, got that drum sander. I've had the drum sander for a long time. Well, you were using it. It looked like you were using it for some face frames. Yeah. That's an older picture. Oh, gotcha. We're talking about an Instagram post I made today, guys and gals. So what I will do is I will tell you about my day at work in our shop. So we're in the process right now of making, what is it? Uh, About 20 cabinets that are double-sided. And then one of them, there's two of them that are, are, One's 15 feet long, one's 20 feet long, and they are going to be flower pots. It's really hard to describe. I'm not going to try to do it. Huh. But it's we're huh. building a lot of cabinets. So we had to make a, t- a ton of face frames, and we actually built half the cabinets today, just the boxes, between myself and Eric, who's, who works with me in that department. And then I started work on a, a job where we've got these, I've got 18 tables to build that are three by eight with four inch post legs square and a four inch top. But it's actually only going to be an inch top, but I have to build it up to look like a four inch top, if that makes sense. So you're building up the edge? Yeah, but I've, okay. the thing is, it's it's. I don't want to get into all the details, but it's it's going to be a nightmare. <laughs> so, but I've got to build eighteen of these, and I have to build one that's got to get approval first from the customer. And once they approve it, they're going to go ahead. Actually, we have the order to do the other. They just want to. They just want to see what it's going to look like before I actually go ahead and make eighteen of them. If that wow. makes sense. Yeah. 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 So. That's what I've got going on, not in my shop, but at work. So what about you, Sean? What do you got going on? I had to wait on some veneer to be delivered, uh, which was actually delivered right before we started recording this podcast. Ooh, what kind? Walnut. And it's for my miter saw cabinet drawer fronts. And the reason why is because the plywood that I got is just so crappy. I, I didn't want to just leave the um, the, dry, the the plywood for the uh, drawer fronts. And then I was like, I thought about edge banding them and just leaving that with the plywood in the middle. But nah, I'm not going to do that. So I got it. I got enough walnut 
veneer in to veneer all the drawer fronts for the um, cabinet drawers. And, and I was like, well, let me look and see what's going to be the cheapest route. I got the veneer for cheaper than a sheet of plywood, definitely cheaper than solid wood. So I'm um, going to be using just veneering the plywood that I have. I have, I did rip up a bunch of walnut for the like a quarter inch thick um, edge banding all the way around the drawer fronts. So it's going to have solid wood edge banding. Uh, I've got backer veneer already. I got a, a crap load of old oh. cheap mahogany that I'm going to be using as a, a backer veneer. And I'm going to be using uh, the heat lock glue on this instead of putting it in the bag mm. just so really? I can plow through this. Yep. Yep. Mm. It's a nice flat surface. Um, mm-hmm. And gives it a little, you know, gives it a nice little hard glue line. So I'm going to go with that route for the front and the back. Good. And uh, give and that a good a, workout. That's an iron on, right? Yeah. Put yeah. it on both surfaces, let it dry, then then iron it on. So that way I can knock it out and I don't have to do 13 drawers inside of a, a bag and all that stuff. Yeah. So that's what I'm, I'm going to be working on and have been working on uh, slowly but surely. Um, cool. But I'll have it done hopefully this weekend. Cool. So that's what I have going on. And I think that I'll do it for this show. Please remember this podcast is here to answer questions from the woodworking community and we're running out. So please send us your questions. Uh, if you would like them answered, you can send them through the contact page over on our website at woodshoplifepodcast.com. If you want to do a, you know, easier to type on your keyboard, or you can DM us through Instagram at woodshoplife. We'd also like to thank everyone who left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps in the search rankings. And don't forget to share this with a friend or two to help spread the word. Uh, we truly support the, geez, we truly appreciate the support and the feedback. <laughs> man, I'm running low on sleep tonight or yes, last night, so I'm, I'm dragging a I'm leaving bit. it in, man. <laughs> well, um, don't forget who gets to upload this. I can edit it out. No, I'm just joking. Oh. <laughs> We'd also like to thank everyone who left this. And I'm just repeating the same thing again. You've got to cut that out. This is ridiculous. <laughs> you can I'm reach not, me. <laughs> you can reach me at simple. This is 97th episode or whatever. And I'm and I'm messing it up this bad. Uh, all right, here we go. And you can reach me at simplecove.com and at simplecove on Instagram and YouTube. If you want to ask me why I'm messing this episode up. Hui, where can they find you? You can get, uh, catch me at alabamawoodworker.com. All the links to my social media on my website. Guy? Uh, just do a search for Guy's Woodshop and you'll find me on, on just about everything. So, Awesome. Thanks for listening. We will see you in a couple of weeks. All see right. you in a couple. See Bye. you.